So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Inside the Mind of Champions. We're in the middle of an emotionally charged Lions tour to South Africa at the moment. And despite being world champions, the box looked a bit sluggish in that first test and the Lions were able to catch them by surprise in that first victory. They hope to go 2-0 up and repeat their epic 1997 heroics, but it wasn't to be. Everyone expected a backlash from the all-conquering box and the second test certainly didn't disappoint. The Springboks smashed the Lions 27-9. So it's all set up for a gripping finale on the 7th of August. My wife is South African and we had some South African mates around to watch the game. I bought some beautiful South African wine and made a traditional poiki on the barbecue or braai as my South African followers will love. Um, sort of a casserole in a big pot if you're English. And I didn't want them to feel too bad when the Lions won, but instead it was me that had to chew over the indigestion watching the emotionally charged game slip away. So what an amazing time for sport, uh, with so many positive stories from the Olympics, uh, the new 100, the new cricket tournament here in the UK. I actually went to Lords last week to watch a game and it was amazing to see. I think there's about eight or 9,000 people watching the women's game, which was an incredible boost to see that size of crowd. And then the men's game followed and was an absolutely brilliant atmosphere. So that competition, despite its early critics, seemed to be off to a, a brilliant and enthralling start. There have been some massive stories on the mental health front this week with Simone Biles, the American gymnast, and the England cricketer Ben Stokes, both pulling out of competitions to protect their mental health. It's almost like this has grabbed the headlines, and especially with Simone Biles being such a pivotal athlete in the Olympics that she's made a, a real stand and been very courageous actually to make that call in such an important competition. So I think that's opened the door for other people, their awareness, and to give them the courage to follow behind that, whether you're in sport or business. So I'm, I'm really pleased to see some of these high profile athletes talking about their mental health just as they would their physical health. We heard Andy Murray, the tennis star, pull out of the singles tournament and he said he'd got a slight thigh strain so that he could focus on the doubles tournament. And again, these get very different treatments. No one mentioned Andy Murray pulling out through a physical 
uh, ailment, but as soon as it's a mental health issue, the whole uh, you know debate opens up. So uh, lots more to be discussed on that. But I, I'm not surprised after delayed Olympics, bubble life is incredibly intense for the athletes. You know the schedules have been completely turned upside down so and and without the family support network that they would normally have I think it's been an incredibly challenging period so I'll probably cover that off in this separate podcast Um, and I'm also sharing some posts on LinkedIn and and my Twitter account so please do come across LinkedIn especially there's some great debates there going on so come across and connect on LinkedIn. Thanks to everyone who took the time to leave a review we're five star rated on Apple and uh, we're in the all-time top 10 for management in the UK. So that's absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your support uh, in sharing the show. The bigger we can grow it, the more I can entice these stellar names to join us for an interview and I can share their secrets with you. So please do share a link to the podcast into your network or across your business if you're in learning and development. Also, special thanks to GK from Muscat, for your five-star review saying that this is the best podcast for the mental aspects of performance. Thanks, GK, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. Well, this week we're going inside the mind of one of the world's most respected coaches, Sir Ian McGeekin. He was born in Leeds in 1946 and he learned his rugby at school despite his football being the main sport in his school. He played club rugby at Headingley and then went on to the teacher training college at Carnegie College, which is now part of Leeds Met University. This grounding as an educator would play a vital role in Sir Ian McGeekin's ability to coach some of the world's most talented players and to galvanise them into some formidable fighting units. He's most famous as the coach of the British and Irish Lions in 1989, 1993, 97 and 2009, as well as being the assistant coach in 2005. He was knighted in the 2010 New Year's Honours List for his services to rugby and also received an OBE in 1990. He's known as Geech, the Lion King and Mr Lions. And here's a taste of what's to come. As a management the players coming in don't know each other as well and it is a little bit like first day term at school that they see how we're operating together and in the early part we set the standards we set the standards of behavior how we're talking to each other what we're doing how we respect each other and then gradually as the players get to know each other and everything evolves what happens is the players it starts to go like that and the management go into a support position and the players are driving the environment I'm just honest with the players about what it means to me and the effect it had on me um, as a player and then ultimately as a coach. You know, my wife will say it changed me. As a coach, I go out of my way to make the team and what it represents bigger than anything in front of me. It's actually, again, respecting where you come from so you know where you can go. And I think then once that had finished, emotionally that was me away with it you know finished uh, but yeah it's um, it's been it's been some journey over 30 odd years with it i'm really excited to share these insights with you and for those who don't know the mechanics of the british and irish lions this is a team that's selected from the best players from england ireland scotland and wales and they only get together to play every four years against the southern hemisphere teams so Ramping this new squad up in a short space of time is a unique challenge for the head coach. 
In our first insight, Saria McGeekin describes how the first step of building a Lions team is for the management team to demonstrate the kind of respect, work ethic and values that the team need to adopt themselves. They lead the culture and Saria now explains how he selected his management team who already shared an understanding and how the process shifted into the team culture as it developed. Take the last Lions tour as an example. Gerald Davis let me pick all the support staff because I needed people who knew me and understood me and that I understood them. Because I think as a management, the players coming in don't know each other as well. And it is a little bit like first day term at school, um, that they see how we're operating together. And in the early part, we set the standards. We set the standards of behaviour, how we're talking to each other, what we're doing, how we respect each other. And then gradually, as the players get to know each other and everything evolves, what happens is the players, it starts to go like that. And the management go into a support position and the players are driving the environment. Not, and, and, it's, and, I think, and then the environment is set by the players. It started, I think, with the management and how we do it. And that's it. Then, then the standard and the levels, the players take over. So by, you know, midway through the tour, they're, they're driving it, it's, it's part of them, we're part of it, but very much, I think, in a, a role where all we're doing is just, just trying to keep, you know, the reins, keep the, keep the thing steady. It's interesting how that process can work so quickly. The management lead, uh, they set the scaffolding, if you like, of the culture and then the players build inside that. And as the mindset, the behaviours and the interactions grow, the scaffolding is removed by the management team and the, the players continue to build with the management taking more of a supervisory role. Coming into camp where everyone and everything is new could be complete chaos. So having this clear foundation led by the management team seems like it gave the environment a really fast start in those high performance expectations that everyone had. Whenever you bring a diverse group of people together, there's a natural tendency for us to form cliques and for conflict to bubble away under the surface as everyone you know, jostles for position in that social pecking order. Acknowledging this tension and these differences in the group is critical but weaving the personal skills, strengths and narratives together into one powerful culture is the real skill that Sarian McGeekin brought to the team, as we'll now hear. If you've got different groups of people coming together, particularly Alliance Tour, I think you have to see, you back to recognise the differences that I think it's trying to explain that the journey that you've had to that point has come through different parts of the country and, and the experiences you've had and everything has brought you to this point. And this is the first time as a group of people we've ever been together. So what we've drawn is everything that's brought us to that point, now collectively, everything we've got, we put together and then we, we go in a single direction. Um, so it's, it's actually, again, respecting where you come from so you know where you can go. So when all the players and the management team have been representing different countries that have been enemies and rivals wearing different coloured shirts, 
it's very easy to look at difference. But what we're looking for here as we start to bring a new team together is we're looking for common ground. So we can go up above those team loyalties that we've had in the past and look for common attributes and common stories to bring us all together. What did your first coach teach you? That's something that all the players will have experienced. What sacrifice did your family make to get you here? That's another thing that they will all share, irrespective of their you know, Scottish or Welsh or English origins. What have you learned from adversity? Whether you're from Bath, Glasgow, Neath or Munster, those stories are the same. These are human attributes and human stories of the struggle and the challenge that's helped you to become this resilient and talented player that's standing in this red shirt at the moment. So the coach needs to become this alchemist uh, to bring all of these experiences together and make sure that they're additive and not conflicting and diminishing away from the team. We shouldn't forget that Sir Ian McGeekin was a brilliant rugby player himself with 32 caps for Scotland at fly half and centre. He captained Scotland on nine occasions and toured with the British and Irish lines himself in 1974 to South Africa and 1978 to New Zealand against the All Blacks. These experiences from his own playing career would go on to inform his coaching philosophy to be what it is today. And he knows what a massive opportunity it is to be in the Lions team. So confidence is critical to imbue that in the players so that they can deliver their very best game as they wear the red shirt. Well, for me, there's no doubt one of the major components of any team working is the trust people build up in one another because you have to be totally reliant on that person doing something. And I think as a team, if you know that 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 occurs, then you don't end up with two people doing the same job just because somebody's not sure about somebody else. And sometimes just leaving them and saying, no, that's yours. And I think back to building confidence, when you, you know, you're happy with somebody and you say, no, that's your responsibility, right? You do that, it means we can do this. And, and that, that level of trust, I think, is, is very, very important. And, um, I mean, I learnt it as a, as, a, as a player, as a sort of, if you like, one of the bit part players on a, on a Lions tour, you know, coming not, not one of the big superstar names. But Sid Miller, the coach, just kept picking out you know, my handling was particularly good and a decent sidestep and things. And incorporating that when you've got Gareth Edwards at one side and Phil Bennett and JPR behind you, you're suddenly doing things just at a different level. And it's actually bringing out. And, and, and he just brought that out of me. So when I came back off that tour, I mean, everybody that met me said I was different. And I was only different because I was actually confident about what I could do as a you know, amateur sports person then, but it actually evolved in, in my whole lifestyle. You know, you were asking things or doing things where I'd maybe have just held back before. And I think that when somebody shows that level of trust, I think you, you then have that confidence to, to take things forward and, and, and realise that by doing this, I'm allowing somebody else to achieve that. It's interesting to hear how these two key principles are almost intertwined. Firstly, building self-confidence and belonging for the individual so that it makes them feel valued and respected. 
And this opens opportunities for learning where the player is looking to experiment and grow and take risks rather than play it safe from a mindset of fear and insecurity in an environment where they don't feel confident. From that confident position, role clarity and trust start to emerge. Everyone's clear on the plan. They know where somebody's job starts and where their job stops and what they're accountable for, for the smaller groups and the team as a whole. In poor teams, players can be looking down at their feet and not reading the wider field. They can become too far apart and not feel connected to those interdependencies that are critical as part of a working unit. Or maybe in an office or a sports team, there's politics at play, which means everyone's wrestling over the same ball. Either way, the team is compromised. So getting people clear, accountable and feeling valued for their role independently is the first step in building trust between players and performers in our workplace. One of the biggest challenges in sport or business is to unite a team that was previously rivals or or enemies. While corporate mergers might take six to 12 months to run its course, they have a full integration program. Sport often moves much faster. And now Sir Ian describes his philosophy of bringing these four distinct nations together into one cohesive team. It's quite difficult trying to get players together quickly. You've got huge talent, um, but you've actually then got a relatively short time to to get it right. Um, I suppose I would go back to 1997 when I was conscious that a lot of the players would be playing rugby for their clubs on the Saturday and meeting as Lions on the Monday. And in a week before we left for South Africa, we had to try and have the same values, the same thinking and the same objectives about how we could play the game. And and I think I said at the time, put a marker down in South Africa about what British and Irish rugby could be. Because I felt, you know, we were going to lose 3-0. You read all the press. There was nothing, you know, really to concern the South Africans. And it was us being able to make that statement. And actually we did, it was the first time I'd ever done it. We, we brought a group in, uh, Impact uh, Company. Um, and it, but I didn't want anything on flip charts and in rooms. I said, rugby players don't want that. I said, but all I want is a set of exercises and a set of activities where not one of them can achieve anything on his own. So everything was achievable, but it had to be in minimum of threes because I've talked about teams within teams and, and that sometimes you have to join another team and you might be the support person in that team, somebody else is leading, and then join another team and you become the leader and you've got two other people with you and they're supporting you. So your role changes depending on what the activity or what the thing is. So we had a week of this, climbing trees, climbing beer crates, tipping each other out of canoes in the River, Th- the River Thames, but we had a week where that was the single message. If we have support, if we have that ability to recognise which team we're in and what our responsibilities are within that team, then we have a chance of beating South Africa and we have a chance of playing this rugby that South Africa will never have seen. And, and we spent the week doing that. So there are a few key insights here. Firstly, he knew that he'd needed the team to have a shared set of values and a shared mental model of how they were going to operate in different situations and under pressure. Because each of the national coaches of the England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland teams 
would have had their own personal style and philosophies, meaning that the players needed different strategies based around star players from their home nation. In just a week or two, Serian had to bring their thinking together into the Lions plan. The other key insight is that even though they were a ferocious band of 15 brothers running out onto the pitch, there are always these dynamic phases at some stage where you might be the leader with the ball, but then very quickly you drop into a support role, clearing the way, tackling or running into space for the next attack. These exercises that were done off the pitch in the calm meeting rooms highlighted the importance of the interdependence within the team and how the players had to be used to moving between the the sort of away from the social hierarchy of senior and junior players to being ready to respond to any situation no matter whether you're a big star or a leader in your national team you're now playing a support role here in this phase of play for the Lions so that ability to get people to be agile and responsive and flexible in that way um, is a really key thing to build in the team. We've seen over recent weekends on this current Lions tour that it's easy to get caught up in the emotion and the flow of play that, you know, you might have just had a late tackle and you're vying for revenge on the pitch and chasing your man down. But you've got to keep your mind on the moment and, and what your team needs. So each team is desperate to win. But I think one of the things we did with England rugby when I was supporting Eddie Jones is we broke that down into those key moments. So the players almost reorientate themselves by saying, if I want to win, W-I-N, then it's what's important now or what's important next. What's my next job? What's my next job? I've just cleared away a ruck. What's my next job to get to the ball and to get into space? And then having the communication in those small working interdependent teams to make sure that the spacing and the positioning and that uh, intensity level is maintained across the working groups through those match periods. But people would die to be even play a supporting role in the British Lions. The badge is such an iconic emblem in world sport. And when I asked Sir Ian about what the badge means, here's what he said. To make the well, to make the badge important, I well with the Lions one, which is probably the easiest. I'm just honest with the players about what it means to me and the effect it had on me um, as a player and then ultimately as a coach. Um, you know, my wife will say it changed me. You know, and I'm I am different because of that involvement. And what I want is people to have such a good feeling about wearing it, but also other people seeing it that you say if what they look at is the best they can think or all they think is good then what we're putting into it is everything it should be and and that I think is if you can get people doing that then they don't leave anything behind. I love that insight and this experience redefined his identity the way he saw himself and the way others saw him that's pretty powerful he sees himself as a different and better, more rounded person having been through that team. He conjures up this image in my mind of people describing this bright red shirt and logo with the four bold quarters. What words can we use to describe it when we think about this visually? Is it heritage? Is it respect? Is it the teamwork that sits behind the lions? Is it excellence? Is it being the best of the best? These 
identity level traits of being part of the Lions are all pretty aspirational. And these, I guess, sit at the heart of being in a high performing team. We all want to work for an organisation that has incredible integrity, a sort of an incredible reputation. It's respected around the world. And that's exactly the same for those elite sports teams like the British Lions. Getting the players to connect emotionally with the badge and to behave in a way that elevates the standard, even through adversity when, you know, the high performing teams can really create a competitive advantage there. And again, there's so much analysis, there's so many statistics that, yes, the strategic side is important, but this sense of belonging and an emotional connection and a pride to play for the shirt and play for the badge, I think is absolutely critical. Anyone can write a few nice words on the flip chart, but how do you behave when you're 20 points down and someone's just stamped on your ear? Being a selfless team player and delivering excellence at all times seems to be at the heart of this experience. And everyone comes out better than they went in. That's what I love about the Lions. So imagine having these kind of values translated across into your sports team or your school or your business organisation. I think that's such an aspirational goal for us all to have and think how these lessons from Surya and McGee can translate into our own businesses. Can we set these really respected human traits of being one of the best in class with, you know, huge respect, huge teamwork, huge selflessness, but individual excellence at the same time and being accountable, not making excuses and, you know, looking for places to hide, actually fronting up and doing our best work individually and then working together collectively to deliver a massive impact for our students or for our customers or for our patients or whatever kind of industry we're in. That idea of emotional engagement and purpose, I think, is right at the heart of high performing organisations. So this all sounds pretty serene and utopian, but you've got to remember that we're talking about 50 red blooded blokes travelling around the world all feeling like they can take on the world. And surely there are individuals that think that the name on the back of their particular shirt is slightly more important than the badge on the front. So how did Sir Ian McGeekin deal with these mavericks, the big ego players that threatened to derail the culture he was aiming to create? To try and get rid of ego in a team or where you think it, it might be, I think there's different ways of doing it. I think as a coach, I go out of my way to make the team and what it represents bigger than anything in front of me. And I will challenge a player and I'll be honest with a player to say, I have my worries that you might take us in the wrong direction. And I think you've got to have that honesty, I think, because I think then you can really move forward. And then when they, you know, they come back to you or players come back, if something's not right, you actually want them to come back to you and say, you know, we need to do this differently or can we change that? But I think if you're honest about that, uh, and I, you know, I firmly believe that the badge that you wear, whatever it is, has to mean everything to you and it is bigger than you are. I can imagine Sir Ian McGeekin drawing on that historic timeline to try and solve this battle, saying that the Lions as an organisation was thriving long before you arrived in the team and will go on long after you've left. So it's not about you. And then thinking about the opportunity that's there for this player to make a difference today, 
to make an impact on so many other people, the millions of people that are watching the lions. They're not watching you, they're watching the lions. And, and these two reference points can really help to keep the ego in check. So selfish and short-term thinking needs tackling head on and reframing to get the performer to think what they can contribute to inspire others and to make sure that the brand and the badge and the lion's jersey retains its premium nature for years to come. I just want to take a moment to invite you onto our free summer mindset challenge. If you're new to Sporting Edge, Sarian McGeekin is just one of about 100 world-class thinkers and performers that we've interviewed. And Sporting Edge has created some incredibly powerful learning digital coaching experiences for all of our clients. So go to sportingedge.com and have a look at those. But as part of our offer for this summer, we wanted to create an opportunity to boost your confidence, resilience and well-being. And if you join our summer mindset challenge, which is completely free, then I'll send you a new insight, a video insight from one of our experts every week as well as some of the neuroscience and well-being experts and some practical strategies to help you to build these high performance habits into your own life and work. We kick off this challenge on the 9th of August, so please do follow the link in the show notes to join us. All you need to do is provide your name and email. It's completely free and we've got an amazing group of people that have joined from around the world so far. So please do join us. It's completely up to you. It's flexible. It's for four weeks and I'm sure you'll enjoy the benefits. We hear so much about mental health, but how do we boost our own and how do we develop a game plan? Well, here's your chance, our free summer mindset challenge and the link is in the show notes below. So we've explored Sarian McGeekin's strategy for managing those individual mavericks or egos, but cultures can break down either by a single flashpoint that happens by surprise or something that damages the team over a slower, more gradual erosion and degradation of the standards across that tour or that timeline. On long, tiring, pressurised tours like the Lions tours, our natural instinct as players is to cut corners, but in elite teams, they set incredibly high standards and keep each other honest in living up to them, even when people's individual motivation starts to flag, bodies are fatiguing and the going gets tough. Both preparing for the flashpoints and having some kind of methodology to create the boundaries that are being crossed are two essential strategies in managing the team culture and upholding those standards, as Sarian now explains. In 97, we, we ended up at the end of what we wanted to look like, because I think if you don't know, how do you get there? And the sort of team we wanted to be on and off the field and what it meant to each other and how you had to deliver that. So we, we had an afternoon where we put all that down, all the, from different perspectives, and it came from the players. How did they want to be managed? How did they want to be told they weren't picked for the first test? You know, the, all the critical, the night a week five on a tour is the week when it can all go wrong. How do we manage it? And, and look in the nice cold light of day so that when we're under pressure, we say, when I had all the logical, cool thinking, this was the best way, and then stick with it and, and, and try and, uh, work that and we ended up with uh, 10 key things on a yellow card 
which we had in our top pocket. So if a player was getting out of order, anybody was getting out of order, all you could do is just pull the card out of your pocket, just show it, and it was acknowledged. And, and the players did that with each other, and you know, yeah, there's always a bit of tomfoolery, but there wasn't anything that was undermining what the group was about. How would that yellow card system work in your team or your company? I think the process of distilling the values and standards down was the key thing to build engagement. These weren't the coach's rules, these were made by the team. And if they break them, they lose integrity. So the yellow card was more figurative than literal and served as a reminder to do what we promised to do as a team. That's the key thing. Can we set our own rules and hold ourselves accountable to them? People are much more uh, you know, disciplined around it if they've had a play in, in setting those rules. So I think this is a great strategy for, for leaders and coaches to think about. The other element that I love from that insight is how high-performing teams like the Lions prepare for those high-pressure situations and those moments. They know selection is going to cause some emotional turbulence. So rather than just pretending it's not going to happen, they actually confront it head on and prepare so that it's smoother when they actually get into those moments. I remember as captain at Leicestershire taking over in the cricket uh, back in the day, um, going to see quite a few of the senior players and sort of talking to them in the pre-season period about how they wanted to be dropped if, if it got to that point in the season and their form was dropping. And people thought I was mad turning up at everyone's house with the bad news of saying, you know, what, what's it going to be like when you're dropped? You know, and this was in February before the season even started. So it was pretty negative. But what it actually did, because some players wanted to be told before the team meeting, other people wanted to be told, this is your last match, pull your finger out. And some people were quite happy for it to just be read out as a team sheet. And I think once we had an understanding of what each individual wanted at that high pressure moment and that emotional flashpoint, then it gave me that permission and that framework to be able to say, hey, you know, it's now July. Remember that time, that conversation we had in February about being dropped? Well, when looking to make a change, if you can't make it happen this week, we might need to change it next week. Or for the ones that said they were quite happy, you know, maybe just give them the heads up in the corridor before the team's announced. And, and they were quite happy with that. So, you know, dealing with some of these high stakes conversations early and setting the tone for them, I think can actually diffuse a lot of the tension if it comes as a shock down the line. So I think that's a key determinant of a high performing culture. You know, all teams have these pressure points but the ones that prepare proactively for it are the teams that thrive. I wanted to try and understand Sirian McGeekin's coaching philosophy and what he saw the key determinants of a successful team as and his answer actually was quite surprising. I think you have to understand the game that you want to coach. I know it sounds, it might sound, I think it sounds stupid and it is a very, per I think it's a personal thing. I think you have to know what you like to see um, and what you like to see in players. Um, and when you're looking at a group, that can be different things as you work with different players. But I think that, you know, is very, is very important that you, you see a game that you back yourself to be able to deliver that with the group that you're working with and that the skills you have, hopefully, is the technical ones to keep the, that side of the game individually and collectively moving forward, but then the effect that that technical ability 
has on the team performance or the performance under pressure. Um, I've always termed it world-class basics that I'd love to say as a coach that he won some test matches because of fantastic tactical approaches. But in the end, it was a group of players who just backed themselves. And when it mattered, their basics were 100%. And, and you know, the number of times you achieve that, you don't lose very often. Having a vision of how you want the team to play is the first step. And then being able to find the winning formula for the actual players you've got in front of you are two Def definitely different things but key things because we rarely have the perfect team to deliver the perfect plan. So once we've got that and we start to work with some of the most talented players, I love Surya and McGeekin talking about focusing on those brilliant basics, those world-class basics because it's often the little things where we can see the most advantage. I work with lots of coaches and senior leaders in business and there's this tendency to be always looking for the next shiny thing, the next piece of innovation. It's blockchain or it's AI or it's machine learning. But actually, some of the key areas that we can make improvements are in customer service or just the efficiency of communication in our team. So, of course, we need to future proof ourselves with some of these technologies. But there's massive advantage where we can master our own skills and make sure that we're delivering excellence in our execution before we start to look outside to something new. And of course, you know, all of these strategies are going to be really critical. But the teams, again, that celebrate doing the basics well are the ones that understand the disciplines that aggregate together to build the momentum and to build that high performing culture and consistent culture of results. So I think Surya McGeekin is definitely seen as a true Lions legend, having tasted success as both a player and as a coach. But I was really interested in how it felt for him to step away from this team that had given him so much in his life. In a way, emotionally, I felt I was coming to the end of a journey with the Lions, you know, seven tours. Um, they'd been a fantastic group of players and they'd gone out of their way, you know, to make things work. And they had lived... The, the way you, you couldn't have asked any more of them. The fact that they still had a test match to win, you know, on the one hand was the disappointing thing, but on the other, that to leave the right image, because uh, I felt the image had been tarnished previously, slightly, um, just, just, just for various reasons, different reasons. Um, and I was so keen that, you know, if that was my last involvement with it, that we could leave the best message possible about what it was all about and I think then once that had finished emotionally that was me away with it you know finished uh, but yeah it's um, it's been it's been some journey over 30 odd years with it. I read a nice quote from Matt Dawson the English scrum half about Geech as he's known and he said there's been many great players associated with the Lions over the years with names like Willie John McBride, Martin Johnson, Scott Gibbs and Gareth Edwards springing to mind. But there's nobody who will come close to what Geech has brought to the red jersey. He epitomises what the Lions stand for. Those players who went to South Africa in 2009 will tell you that if they bumped into one of their fellow Lions, they would give them an enormous embrace because there is this bond that will be there forever. And that's because of Geech, the ultimate lion. 
So Sir Ian McGeekin's legacy as a Lions player and coach is set. He upheld the highest standards of integrity, teamwork and excellence, both for himself and his own coaching and also for his teams that he managed. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about the inner workings of the Lions. I can only hope that the Lions bounce back to win the third test. Otherwise, I've got four years of chirping from my South African wife. Uh, but with this formidable world champions on a roll and smelling blood and Rassi Erasmus, the cunning water boy, anything could happen. I really hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and please do leave a review and share this link with your network if you can. It'd be great to be able to grow the show in that way. And I hope to see you inside our Summer Mindset Challenge. Remember, it starts just next week and follow the link in the show notes below. So until next time, thanks for listening. Good luck and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. 